Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is A.J. Woodhams, and I am the host of War Books, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today is a very special day for War Books because it is our first episode. Um, And I was so excited to have Philip Blood uh, on as our first guest. Philip is a historian um, and also a host on the New Books Network, uh, where I am also a host. Um, so it was such an interesting conversation. It was about his new book, Birds of Prey, uh, which is a groundbreaking book in the field of World War II scholarship. Uh, Philip writes a lot about uh, the Luftwaffe and um, and their crimes in Poland and some of the things that, that don't get as much attention, uh, don't get as much scholarship written about them. Um, but they should. And so we had a really fascinating conversation. I was so grateful for, for Philip. His book was excellent. And um, you'll have to bear with the audio for a little bit. I uh, had to make some adjustments, but it's a really great conversation. And, and I hope you learn a lot from it. So let's get going. Uh, today I'm here with Philip Blood. Uh, Philip is a historian and writer who served as chief administrator and senior fellow with the American Academy in Berlin. Uh, he also worked as a historical advisor to the Association of the U.S. Army. And Philip, Philip's work covers the politics of violence and the history of military culture. Um, Philip, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Now we've started that thing, haven't we? Eh? Yeah. <laughs> same club, so we've now got into a club scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Philip's new book, uh, Birds of Prey, Hitler's Luftwaffe, Ordinary Soldiers, and the Holocaust in Poland. It's a, a, a groundbreaking book, from what I understand. So I'm really, really excited to talk to him about it. So, Philip, well, let's just dive right in. Um, so first, actually, before we start talking about Birds of Prey, um, maybe you could just give the audience some context here. So your book starts in, in 1942, kind of before we get into it. Uh, can you give the audience some some context? What was going on in the war at this time? Okay, so we're in a, a strange situation. The book technically starts in 1942 because that's the main part of the body of the research, but it, but it actually goes a bit before. It's the origins of, if you like, the way the Luftwaffe was formed in the 1930s and then came to a process where it was part of or, or running into the wider picture of Nazi um, thinking, doctrine, dogma, and strategic thinking. And we know the Luftwaffe as the aviation and um, the air fighting and the paratroopers, the Fallschirmjäger, but there was less work done on the organization and its honor code. So there's before the war, I build a picture up on how the honor code and how the organization was uh, created in the mind of Hermann Goering, who kind of 
put together this medievalist idea that you could run a um, an old style court with people following patterns of behavior which you know brits and americans find very odd because we don't bow and curtsy and eat certain food simply because we've killed it and we've killed it in an honorable way and all the rest of it and he tried to bring all of that back which was a combination of old german history and to a certain extent fantasy and then that was woven into the etiquette of the Luftwaffe. So you actually have an honor code uh, and a social court, which men from the Luftwaffe and the forestry organization and hunting abided by. And of course, once, you, once you've broken into that story, you can then look at 1942 and say, well, how did we get here? Well, we got here for a, very, for a series of patterns. One is Goering is central to uh, Nazi policy as Hitler's deputy, but he's also pushing the Holocaust. And his forces are central to the Holocaust because obviously with the forests, they're building camps in the center of forests, especially in the Polish area. And so foresters are behind the construction of extermination camps and they're creating the sites. And they're, of course, linked to the Luftwaffe because of the mobilization. So it's like a, uh, it's like a, a catch-22 scenario. One goes one way, one goes the other. They have to be connected all the time. And where people are, not catch-22, chicken and egg situation. But eventually what you actually have is a strategy coming out of uh, Goering's group thinking of running a huge, and I mean huge, um, forest from the Baltic right the way down also almost to the edge of the Ukraine. And this would be a forest wilderness, which would be, to a certain extent, a blockade to the Russian hordes. Now, obviously, that runs counter to what the SS and the Nazis are doing, trying to build Lebensraum, going to the Urals and all that stuff. So Germany has invaded the Soviet Union. America has just gotten into the war. And... There's this uh, in Poland um, where the Nazis are, are, are trying to live out Lebensraum. This is kind of the context in of, of your book is um, this, this, this space that the Nazis are trying to figure out. So what the, the point is to understand why they're in a the forest, <laughs> you need to understand why, why they have this honor code. And now what I was going to go on to say is, while the war is going into its more totality with the Americans coming in um, from the uh, from the attack on Pearl Harbor and, and the operations in the Far East where the British Empire is attacked, it's almost like Goering is saying, well, that doesn't really matter because I'm building my own empire and I can't, don't really give a damn about their empire. And it's very odd. And I don't mind admitting, one of the things that I found strange was whilst, because from October to December, you've got obviously all the activities going on in 19, at the latter part of 1942, which is about what's happening in Stalingrad. And you would think, given what's happening in Stalingrad, resources would not be being ploughed into a Polish forest, but they are. And... It's it's very difficult for a, a lot of people to understand what's actually happening on this this eastern front. 
in that they're trying to incorporate the East into the Greater German Reich and at the same time conduct this war. So you've got all of these activities running in parallel. So so you've got the SS um, running the Holocaust. You've got the Luftwaffe and German reserves running the forest area. And you've got the German army fighting the war. That that kind of massive confusion, if you then overlay it with all the different authorities um, in kind of one it's not so much confrontation that they're all at each other's throats and then they're all friends and then they're all back at each other's throats and then they're all friends again it's it's such a massive confusion that to try and weave a way through it all you're forever trying to say well okay they're now on this side no no they're not Mm -hmm. now they're on that side and they're and they're forever having meetings where they end up doing quite the opposite to what they've agreed to do so so your book then so so I guess first, like, tell me, you know, what your book is about uh, now that we've got some context and then why is this, why is this important? I, I think I know because of what you just said with a lot of focus on the Eastern front, but yeah, well, what's it about and why is it important? Well, initially, and I have to go back to my PhD study for this. My PhD was in the SS operations and security warfare taking place mostly in the East. Um, again, the period end of 1941 running to 45. Now, during those operations that the SS were running, and some of them are quite famous, like the, Vas- uh, the Warsaw Uprising, the SS are heavily supported by the Luftwaffe. And wherever I went in of an operation between 1941 and 1945, the Luftwaffe was significantly supporting the SS, even to the point that they gave the SS almost a squadron of aircraft, which they, which involved the transfer of Luftwaffe men into the SS, but not actually as SS men. So you get this, again, you get this crazy overlap. And because I kept running into attacks by Stuka pilots or, or Messerschmitts and whatever, I felt it was necessary to start examining the Luftwaffe. Now, I'd always had an interest in the Luftwaffe as an organisation because I was just simply interested in the aircraft. My father was an aircraft designer in his youth and uh, brought me up to understand aircraft, and I just had an interest in, well, not just German aircraft, all aircraft, including American aircraft and, and other countries. So it struck me that it was very odd that the that the Luftwaffe should be involved in these operations with the SS. And the more I started to delve, the more I was coming up against walls, mostly due to the fact that the Luftwaffe records were destroyed in 1945. So I had to skirt around different ways to understand what the Luftwaffe were doing. And around about, it must have been about the time I qualified my PhD and I'd I'd received uh, an offer to publish my first book, which was known as, which was called Hitler's Bandit Hunters. Um, My then supervisor, a very famous historian in Britain called Richard Holmes, suggested I split off and write the chapters which have been on the Luftwaffe into a separate book. He said, because it'll, first of all, it's confusing because of that overlay of constant different authorities working. But there is a story there about the Luftwaffe is yet to be told. So 
this book, Birds of Prey, is essentially looking at the birth of the Luftwaffe under the Nazis from 1935 up to almost present day because some of the things I examine include the, the myth of the Luftwaffe, the, the idea that it's a clean air force that is never involved in Nazi crimes. And, of course, <laughs> that's that's a difficult subject for a lot of people to understand. Uh, you say that, um, or I read, actually, uh, in the uh, the intro to this book, or maybe I read it on the, uh, the Amazon page or something, but uh, it's the smoking gun of research is what is, is put. Uh, into the intro why is this why is this such a groundbreaking book why why has the Luftwaffe been I don't know if ignored in this context is the right way to put it but why is why is this why is this so groundbreaking okay well it comes from a quote from the time when I qualified for my PhD and it's Richard Holmes the late Richard Holmes who passed away in in 2000 and his idea was Having seen, I'd shown him the the documents that I'd I'd discovered in an archive in Germany, and he was astonished. Actually, everybody I've shown the documents to have been astonished, uh, simply because you would think, like the SS or the army, that the 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 Luftwaffe would try and disguise the killing. Well, they were not disguising the killing; they were pretty open about it. Uh, in most brutal terms, really, I suppose. So the difference in from what what the army did and the Luftwaffe did is the army hid it, whereas the Luftwaffe didn't. They were they plain as day uh, committed committed all these crimes. Well, the, 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 there's um, several soldiers who I follow, and I went into great detail to under you know to try and see what what they were about. They would write in their in their reports that we, for example, we came across an emaciated Jew. She wouldn't get up, so we killed her. We found Moshe and Sasha Gold. Um, they'd run away from a ghetto, twenty five kilometers away. It's middle of snow and freezing to almost frozen and emaciated. We brought them back to the centre of the town in the forest. Uh, they were then put before a drumhead court-martial and executed on the grounds of trespassing, but they were listed as Jews. So their guilt was for being Jewish, but they were hung for trespassing in the forest. Because it was written almost to the day, there was a connection with the past which was greatly unusual. If you've come across books like Christopher Browning's very famous book, Ordinary ordinary men, he looks at a police unit where they investigated the crimes after the war and many of these men in the 60s remembered what they'd done, but there wasn't that much evidence of how they'd done it at the time because many of the reports had been destroyed. In my case, I didn't have any memories or reports from the times when they, when these men uh, were collecting their pensions in the 60s and 70s. What I had was what they actually wrote on the day. And they were pretty brutal in what they wrote. It was it 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 was it was remarkable really because you had so many officers, NCOs and junior NCOs writing such descriptions. And these are just in their reports. 
Yeah, and in their diaries. I mean, it was so... I think when I, when I first saw it, I was utterly astonished. I'd never read anything. like. I mean, I've read some pretty brutal stuff from, from the SS, but even the SS wouldn't go down to quite the detail that these Luftwaffe soldiers would, were saying. And what surprised me most, and here, here's, the, here's the thing, those reports went to the central Luftwaffe headquarters through the process, through the chain, and nobody censored it. So here is an area of, of what has been taken from Poland and turned into Germany. So it becomes homeland area. People have been killed, which is military murder, under the German penal codes. And the German authorities within the military system have said nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that is the smoking gun, because we've always had this situation where, okay, we'll make it quiet, we'll just list it, that the partisans were killed or a number of Jews were. And that, and to a certain extent, that, were, that appeared to be sometimes collateral damage and sometimes part of a major operation. But they, they didn't really want to elaborate how the killing was being done. That was the point. It's only when you get certain units, like certain SS units, that would delve into the more unpleasant sides of how you know mass killing. Then there might be a record, but mostly um, the armed forces didn't go into detail. There'd, there'd, there'd be a killing, and then they'd move on. Here, you know, I, I was astonished. There was one village where it was in proximity to. A junior officer who was killed by partisans and pure retribution the battalion commander got as many troops who were available to literally march into a town and kill 242 people and yet two months before and this is a contrast which really kind of surprised me there was a another incident where they went to the village and they made the residents dig up the graves uh, dig up um, grave pits and then made the people stand before the grave pit and threatened to kill them and then went away and came back and said, now we're going to kill you. And, you know, there's a process there which is so is so brutal, so harsh to make people stand before their own graves and then have a discussion and then keep coming back and then coming back and then eventually letting them go and then all of these uh, these Luftwaffe officers going off for a meeting, saying, "Well, that was really successful. They'll never do that again." So, what, why do you think? Why do you think this was unique to the Luftwaffe? Um, you say most most units didn't elaborate on their crimes, but why did the Luftwaffe choose to do that? I've had my suspicions for a long time that one of the great reasons for the Luftwaffe going to such to such a way of Killing, kill, destroying as many records as possible in May 1945 was that there was so much in there that was unpleasant. And, and we've always had little tidbits, like the flak units which were covering Auschwitz, the flak trains that would sometimes support um, the deportation of Jews from certain ghettos. And we knew about the various units, the Luftwaffe units in Warsaw during the uprising in 1944. And there were these Luftwaffe paratrooper actions in Italy where um, they would 
uh, cleaner town. If the Italian partisans had attacked any of their um, troop movements, they would take hostages or even, in one case, I think they killed everybody in a town. So it's always been there. But this was the first time we actually had, over a sustained period of, of three years, actual evidence of the Luftwaffe doing what they were doing. And it was being reported, not just being reported through the military chain, but it was being reported directly to Hermann Goering. Now, Goering had made a point in Nuremberg that none of these Nazi crimes he'd participated in, and here he was. And in addition, um, Hermann Goering's primary defence witness was a very famous German fighter pilot called Adolf Galland. And Adolf Galland was deeply involved in this because he was he was very close to the battalion commander of one of these um, battalions, who was also the battalion commander who was also um, Hermann Goering's personal hunter. In German hunting culture, you have a personal hunter. It's a guy that goes round with you. They would go around with the monarch or whoever uh, and make sure to confirm that the kill had taken place. And it was quite a a process. Uh, this battalion commander was a big friend of Adolf Galland. So you see these connections. And of course, when the battalion commanders are being changed as the battalion changeover in 1943, they're, they're all working together at the same headquarters where Galland is. So it's very difficult not to say that there's some kind of association. The fact that I picked up Galland in other committing other serious misdemeanors and Nazi crimes is neither here nor there. There was evidence that they were all involved in this part. And many of them, um, even during the, well, I mean, this is crazy to think it really, but while, while you're in the middle of the war, Goering is offering his senior fighter pilots to come to um, his forest estate at Raminton and kill a stag. That was a reward for getting a knight's cross or what have you. So it was all tied into this process, and it's very difficult not to to assume that what's going on in Raminton in the headquarters isn't being discussed. They're not discussing what's going on in the Polish forest. Now, this is this might be kind of a this might be a dumb question, but why is why is the the Luftwaffe why is the Air Force why why are they on the ground why are they there committing these crimes? Well, it's a very good question, and it goes to the hub of what the Luftwaffe was all about. I mean, if you if you assume that the Luftwaffe was just an air force, it looks odd. If you look at the air force in nineteen forty four. It's actually got more ground forces than it has air forces. It's got several panzer divisions, two, I think. Um, it's got 20 um, ground troop divisions, and it's got, the I think, was it 10 or 12? I always forget. Um, parachute divisions. On top of that, there was an enormous signals system which the Luftwaffe was dominant was literally it's like dominating the whole of social media today, you know, like a Twitter takeover. They, 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 they controlled a huge network of signals, and all of their signals 
were being controlled through Hermann Goering's um, signals regiments in all the various places. So messages were coming through. Uh, the message was coming through almost within minutes of a report being issued for a, a military chain, which when you start looking at it from the ground forces side, you suddenly realise he was actually building an army. <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't a project just to have an air force with a few fighters and a few transports and a few bombers. He's got the full range, and of course they've got the seaplanes, and you know they had strange um, launches running down rivers. So his his empire. You first of all think of Goering as you know, the famous fighter pilot who becomes fat, who trying to uh, become Hitler's, su- you know, supreme deputy. There's this other side, this ambitious side, which we all think, well, come Stalingrad, they've let down the the Sixth Army and not supplied them with equipment and rations and what have you. Well, okay. So why does after 1943 the Luftwaffe grow even further? If he's not, if he's no longer flavour of the moment, why are these formations still expanding, and why are the troops expanding? And then, when you dig further down, he's been combing out all of the flak divisions which have been giving the home defence cover for the strategic, you know, against the strategic bombing of Germany. All the German cities had these flak units. They started to comb them out and they took the young guy, they they replaced the trained soldiers with kids from schools. So here in Arkham, all the 15-year-olds were firing the the anti-aircraft guns. And the soldiers then ended up in places like this forest. So so I've got records of all of the the guys that came from this area um, from the various flak units being transferred into the forest. And you would ask, well, why? If they're good military material, why are they going to other places? Well, 43, 44, he's still running to the plan. And that is, again, it changes our understanding of what the Luftwaffe and what the thinking is going through in the the Nazi hierarchy. Uh, And I say this to quite a few people, you know, it's all right saying, well, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. But the Nazis were definitely not working to the Western plans. They weren't fighting Britain's war or America's war. They were fighting a very distinct war. And that's not just the Holocaust, the war against the Jew, the Jews. It's the war against the Slavs. It's, a, it's the war of occupation. It's the war against Russia. It's the war against America. They're all different, and they all have... We all have incredibly different strategies. I, I find it amazing that we still have this idea that somehow they weren't the Germans weren't thinking of their own strategies and their own strategic ambitions, that somehow they were playing wag the dog to the Western Allies or the Russian Red Army. And they weren't. They weren't not at all. Yeah. One of the things that I um read that I thought was interesting uh, in your book was that um it's it's a common idea that after Stalingrad, uh, Goring kind of receded into he didn't he didn't have he was thought of as not having um, so big of a role 
But one of the things that you're saying is, no, that's not the case at all. That's a myth. He actually just just uh, focused his attention on Poland and some of the crimes that were committed there. Very much. And he continued um, acquiring arts from across the whole of Europe. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he has this meet, this final meeting. He's, he's in the doghouse after Stalingrad. There's no doubt about that because, and it's not because of Stalingrad. This is what I'd like to point out. It's not about Stalingrad that he's in the doghouse. He's in the doghouse because he's allowed all these hunters and foresters to be setting policy that Hitler thinks is distracting Goering from the main effort. And gossip comes from Joseph Goebbels' um, little clique, which is Bormann and a few famous German pilots like Rudel, who don't want the hunting on a code scenario. And they're hardcore Nazis. So they, they their view is Goering, if he's put on the straight and narrow, will lead the nation again because he's still Germany's top soldier. So Goering, kind of, I mean, I just think he's the kind of person that you have to be very careful of because he would be so, I can imagine him incredibly duplicitous and he plays Joseph Goebbels well. He does, he, you know, he kind of promises he's going to be good and Goebbels, you can read it in Goebbels' diaries, is thinking that Goering is turned. And when he, he literally, the, the, the moment that Goebbels says, that's it, he's back on the straight and narrow, Goering has sent his, Goering has sent his troops to Italy to plunder all the monasteries. And I, yeah, that's astonishing. You're thinking, oh, hang on a minute. It's just, uh, uh. and I, I, that's why, to a certain extent, a lot of this, um, a lot of what's happened in my work with the Luftwaffe pushes against pushes against a lot of what has been written for so long and what we've assumed. And of course, yeah, it happily with a lot of people, unfortunately. Let's talk about the the forest because that's uh, obviously um, huge part of your book. You did on the ground research there. What? Uh, tell me what what role the forest played in in Poland when it came to the Holocaust and the crimes of the Luftwaffe is it's I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right uh Bielowieja forest I mean none of us will ever get it right apart from I call it Bielowieja but everybody okay. has their own and I'm probably no more better than anybody else but it's um well tell it's... me about tell me about the forest and, and the crimes that happened there the the types of people committing the crimes, the victims of these crimes? Well, the forest, so very briefly, the forest is Poland's royal forest dating back from the Lithuanian Commonwealth time, back, 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 way back. And it became a battleground for many armies, but at the same time, it became an area the Russians wanted. So in about 18, I think it was 1806, the Russians took the forest into its empire and you get a royal forest, which was Polish, right in the centre of something called the Pale of Settlement. And the Pale of Settlement was during Imperial Russian times. It was an area where Jews were allowed to settle within. It's almost like a corridor running right the way up. And, and, and it's Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, 
um, going right up the, up to the Baltic. And there's all these communities, and we know many of these communities are shtetls, and we know. I don't think I think the the numbers change, and I can't always get them right, so I'm probably guilty here. But somewhere between seven and eleven million Jews were in this area when the Nazis invaded in 1941. And uh, students always say to me, "If the Nazis didn't like the Jews, why did they invade an area where all the Jews were?" <laughs> and and that's that's the crux of the problem, because in this forest you've got these small communities in in towns there's like several hundred in a place called Naravka, there's more in the main town Biovisha itself. And so in nineteen forty one the Nazis come in and they start killing these communities, literally. Goering posts a letter around about the thirtieth or thirty first of July nineteen forty one that Heydrichs and Himmler must find a solution to the killing of the Jews. And the next day, first of August, um the chief forester and Goering's number two in forestry and hunting commits troops with the SS to start killing Jews in the community. And the Naravka Jews are killed in a very unpleasant way on the 5th of August. The remains of the families are sent to a ghetto in Prozani. Now, that's a town that's had many different names. Um, so I'm just going to stay with the one that the Germans use and the one that I use in the book is Prizani. There's another one, there's another camp outside in Kamenechk and there's the big, very big ghetto in Bialystok. Now, as the Germans start, this is, this is where it gets very confusing. As the Germans start to exterminate the Jews by deporting those in the ghettos to Auschwitz and Treblinka and the other infamous camps. The Luftwaffe start taking the people, the Polish people, out of the forest, those who've remained, and put them in places like Bielostok, in the same houses that the Jews have just been removed from. So you're so you're giving the Polish community a very strange message. You said we've killed the Jews to house you Poles but we don't like Slavs. And what Goering does is he sets his troops to doing this task. And again, we're back into a situation where nobody's really detailed how how they did a deportation with horses and how they got the trucks together and how they created the convoys and how they gave the soldiers cycles to ride back from Bielostok. It's about 70 kilometres. And so I, I reconstructed the whole story of what they call what the Germans were doing, which was population engineering. And so you've you have somewhere in the region of about um, fifty settlements that are destroyed or people deported from, and you have this process which I was able to reconstruct, and it's just tragedy. You, you so you're you're dealing on the one hand people being taken out of their, forced out of their communities. I mean, the, the, they're fairly, this isn't, oh, well, you know, at the end of the month you can move and we'll put you into a job and we'll put you into a house. It's basically, well, you know, you've got 24 hours or even less, four hours, clear up your stuff and go. And while they're doing this, if you can't take everything with you, so like, for example, you might own a cow, a family might have owned a cow or a few sheep or whatever, 
they're taken off them and the people are told they're going to be supplied with rations. And you know full well that when they get to Bialystok, they're not going to be looked after. They're just going to be treated as slave labour. So what you're actually seeing is some form of old-style colonialism where they're, where, where these troops have just literally gone into, an old, into a local community, an indigenous community, uprooted them, sent them to Bialystok, and then they're going to be worked to death. And the Luftwaffe are doing this. This isn't, this isn't the army and the SS. This is, so this, is just, this is just the Luftwaffe in, in Poland then. Yeah. And there's no, there's no SS men involved in this. There's no one saying, well, you know, you've got to do it this way and that way. These Luftwaffe guys know what they've got to do and they do it. Was it, they is know it, how to do it. Was it just Poland? Um, I've got evidence of other places, but not strong enough to make a claim that that's what actually what physically happened. I'm aware that it took place in the Ukraine. I've got some indications it took place in Greece. So, so why do you why do you think that this the scholarship on the Luftwaffe in their crimes in the Holocaust? Why do you think this has been neglected? That's a very good question. I mean, the, to a certain extent, I have sympathy for people who want to write just about aeroplanes and fighter pilots, and you know, just being in the clouds. But the problem with that is at some point the pilot has to come down and engage with the organization that they're part of. Um, And it doesn't matter how much you remove them from an organization. If the organization is fundamentally criminal, then however, however much moral integrity the pilots have, they're still working for an immoral, corrupt, criminal organization. And I understand why... You know, we call them, I suppose academics call them popular historians, but I understand why people want to talk about Messerschmitt fighter pilots and, you know, the apparent glory of the Battle of Britain and all, and those things. But it's telling it's telling a story which isn't, to me, realistic. Because, yes, the Royal Air Force is fighting the, the, the Germans in 1940 for the, you know, for survival. But there's another survival. If the Germans had landed in Britain in 1940 and had occupied the country, I know full well what was going to happen because several of my relatives were on a list to be killed. So, and I know, not going into great detail, but I'm sure somewhere along the line, I probably wouldn't have had the correct, you know, my relatives wouldn't have had the correct racial background and they would have been shipped off. And that side of the story is often overlooked. Now, you know, when I was much younger and there were programs around talking about history, there was that side of the history was beginning to not so much blossom, but emerge. And the war was was taking a much more ugly picture than just what we'd known in, in Britain from the Battle of Britain and the d-day landings and what have you now we see another picture and that picture's been building up since the 80s when people like omar bartoff and other uh, leading historians started to really expose what the german armed forces what the what the nazi plan was and now we're in this situation where you know was it sustainable for the Luftwaffe just to be flying around above the skies when it's got all this hardware down on the ground doing what it's doing, when it's 
linked to the whole extermination process, both as a flak protective force to places like Auschwitz and the other camps, where it's supporting slave labor, where the aircraft, you know, the actual aircraft themselves are being manufactured and constructed by Jewish girls because they've got small hands. You know, they're working on the production lines because they're cheap labor. They're being taken out of places like Dachau to work on the machine parts on the Maybach engines for the for the various fighter planes and Tiger tanks and what have you. So what are you actually dealing with here? It's not just the fighting forces. Yeah, okay, they're in the air, but you're actually dealing with an illegal organ, you know, a criminal organization that is literally built on the on the notions of racial extermination, and that the whole war is about extermination, mass extermination. You know, we 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 think of how the Jews are literally the target right the way up to 1945. I mean, that's remarkable that the war is is collapsing and the Germans are still fighting to kill as many Jews as possible. That is so inconceivable in your mind that you're prepared to let your nation lose so long as you destroy that class of people, that race of people. That, That to me is not sustainable when you want to do military history. You either accept it, and and write it into the story so you know what Adolf Galland and the other fighter pilots like Troutloft have done. Or you say, you know, this is just some kind of fantasy and we stick with the fantasy. You, you had mentioned that this this book is uh is not popular uh with in, in your words, the the fanboys. Um there's this this is a uh, uh I mean obviously, you know, it's, it's a very heavy topic to discuss and um, there are a lot of controversial aspects but your book in particular is controversial what's what's the controversy explain what what some of the pushback is well first of all you've got you know we're going back to what's actually happened with the with the myths of the Luftwaffe and here's here's a here's a for instance you will always be told when you're looking at Adolf Garland or Troutloft or any of these famous fighter pilots, that after they've shot down somebody like Douglas Bader or Stamford Tuck or whoever, you'll have a nice meal. And they talk about how, you know, this, that, and the other. You never hear those stories about the Russian pilots. They'll shoot Russian pilots down in mass numbers, but you don't hear about, you know, meal afterwards. Many of the Russian pilots, as soon as they're shot down, are put into these horrible camps, and very few survive, especially in 41 and 42. So the whole story of the Luftwaffe being, you know, this honourable, there's limits. And when you dig deep into some of the material, you suddenly notice certain things. And I, I got a first warning when I read Stanford Tuck's biography. He mentioned how when they, when he, when he had crashed and Galland took him for a meal, the adjutant was questioning him, Stanford Tuck, about why Britain would want, would want to fight for the poles. That's a, that's politics, and that's that's getting to the Nazi question. You know, Poland should not exist. So a Luftwaffe, a Luftwaffe adjutant asking a 
of British airmen why they're fighting for Poland. That's politics. You can't dismiss that. Well, that's been known since 1953. But I'll defy you to find somebody who's written about what the Luftwaffe have done uh, and, and their performance as great fighter pilots has mentioned that moment in Stanford Tuck's book. And so you, you're looking at somebody like me who's come along and said, okay, uh, you know, you want to do that stuff, that's fine. But history has to progress. And we've studied the SS, we've studied the army, we've studied the German army, we've, to a certain extent, we've studied the, 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 the Kriegsmarine, the Navy. Now we have to really understand what the Luftwaffe is doing because it is the primary organisation of Goering. And we've had this strange situation in the historiography that even to a certain extent, Goering has started to disappear. Like he, his role is so bitty. You know, he writes this letter to Heydrichs and Himmler about the Holocaust, uh, the final solution. And then he turns up again in Stalingrad. And then he's the, the man who's trying to get Hitler to pass pass control to him while he's in Munich and Hitler's in in uh, Berlin. And it's such a disjointed story. And then we discover that somewhere along the line, Goering's had 50 British fighter pilots and airmen um, executed after the, you know, the Great Escape, you know, the, the famous film. And that actually happened. And that story was you know, that, that case was brought to Nuremberg and yet we still don't really figure on the fact that Goering's behind all of this. He, 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 because we've created this story of the Luftwaffe as these knights in the air, the blonde, blonde heroes, we've missed what's happened. And what we tend to also forget is many of these fighter pilots ended up flying for the Bundeswehr, which is the West German Air Force after the war. And it suited their purposes to get into the new Air Force to maintain their career of flying, which I totally understand. But by telling stories about themselves, which were plainly not true. And in that process, certain things were happening. And I found it quite remarkable that you have somebody like the American Counterintelligence Service who are monitoring Garland after the war for 20 years, but also monitoring others that they knew were political risks. Yet none of that story, which has been open, I mean, those files have been open accessed in the National Archives in Columbia Park in America since the 80s. Nobody's bothered to pick them up. Why not? It, it strikes me that if, you go, if you're a PhD student and you're working on, on the Luftwaffe or the SS, you go into an archive like the National Archives and you go through the search catalogue and you ask the word, Galland, and blang, 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 all the files come up. Why haven't other people done that? And you can't use the excuse that it's German. You don't read German. You only read, you know, British copies because it's all in English. Even the transcripts of the handlers who are monitoring Galland's behaviour, all of that's being translated by the US Central Intelligence Units, you know, the counterintelligence units. Uh, and it's all part of the US military system. And they know what's going on. They even, I mean, the most remarkable thing, I think I mentioned it in the book, there was a huge site 
near an airfield in 1943, which the Germans investigated. And it was a site where um, the NKVD had killed many locals. Now, that site was investigated, and it was investigated through Luftwaffe personnel that the Americans knew in West Germany. And that record was put out there in English. And that was a proper investigation. And that was in the 50s. So the idea that somehow the Americans were letting all of these guys go and and that we've got this clean Luftwaffe and it's all being encouraged is not entirely true. They're monitoring because they're very concerned that there's a political activity taking potentially going to take place of a reawakening of the Nazis, which, of course, doesn't happen, but they're very concerned. And it's very interesting that it's the Luftwa- uh, the American Air Force commander who says, no, no, Galland is not allowed in the Bundeswehr. So it's not the Germans that make the decision, it's the Americans. Let me ask, why is, um, so this, this topic, so why, why is this important to you? What, what, what led you to want to write this book and, and to write about this topic specifically about the Luftwaffe? That's another good question. It's a bit hard, really, because you, you, you split the, the question in two ways. I mean, in short term, it was the extension of the, ne- of, of the PhD research. But there's also another factor, which is, you know, you, when you're confronting a train of events, um, various, you know, as, you, as you're looking... So you start a decision tree. You know, I'm sure you've come across decision trees, but you start a decision tree and the branches all go in all different places. And whichever way you go down, it's like, you know, lots of story and lots of story. There was this branch called the Luftwaffe and it was kind of stumped. And I needed, you know, as you get this urge, there's more to it. And, okay, I knew that the records were gone and what I had read I think there was about 10 microfilms. It was not very much. And there was all these maps. And one of the maps was the forest with the troops, all the Luftwaffe troops and the signals and the connections to Berlin and Reminton and all of this. And I just looked at it and I thought, what the hell were these guys thinking? Because this is, this is colonialism of a huge kind. And I just thought I have to take it further. And, um, okay, there was a moment when we thought we couldn't go any further. And then one day, just just chance, decided to track threads in aviation literature from 1914 right the way up to 1945. Now, I know this sounds odd. I'm kind of going off again. But there's threads, yeah. We all know as academic, I mean, I did a year of historical research and was taught by one of the masters, I mean, really one of the top historians, to follow the follow the trail, follow that trail till you really do pin it down. And um, so I started to read all these books from, most of them been published around about the period 1919 to about 1934. They're all be before the Nazis, but there's some Nazi in there, but mostly it's all about the First World War and what their life was like before the First World War. And I started to see threads in there. And there were things like honor codes and hunting and blooding. And blooding was a very common word. 
And in hunting, to be blooded is to, you know, your first kill, your first animal, your stag or the boar or whatever. And this was written deep into the thinking of the Luftwaffe fighter pilots. Well, sorry, not the Luftwaffe, but the German uh, German aviators in the First World War, Luftstreich. And their stories after the First World War continued that. So I saw a trend in German cultural thinking, which goes from 1848 when the new hunting laws started to be introduced, right the way up to 1945, and then slotted in the middle, almost like by chance, I picked up the first German manual on hunting, and it was written by um, Goering's special hunter, who was also linked to these fighter pilots who was then linked to the famous First World War pilots like Ernst Udet. And then the picture just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, what was this stunted growth of the Luftwaffe? Suddenly there's all stuff coming out from all over the place. And then you find, and this is the quirk of reading German literature, what actually happens is they start changing the, 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 the kill from the enemy pilot to the animal. So don't get so many kills in in Goering's masterwork when they produce the Nazi book. What you get is this moment when he goes out and kills this stag called Knuff. And, you know, Knuff is this, you know, all I could think of was this cuddly old stag who was pretty wise, who kept giving Goering the runaround. But if you read that story against von Richthofen, from the First World War, you'd almost say, hey, take Knuff out and put a British pilot in. And you've got the same, it's almost the same words. What's going on here? There's something happening. Uh, and then once the, you know, once your mind starts saying, hey, you know, there's something going on here and I want to know what it is, then that led me to go on further and that's how we get to where we are now. Really followed the thread on that. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Philip, um, tell me what are, first of all, it's been a great interview. Uh, I've learned a lot. Your, your book is fascinating. What, what's, what's next for you? What's, what do you've got coming up? Just a question. Yeah. Did you think it was hard reading? You know, it's not, it's not easy to, you know, to read about the Holocaust for me, at least. Um, when these, these are, are real things, obviously the history is very interesting to me. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm floored. I mean, everybody I'm sure is, even when you're a scholar, you still, I'm, I'm sure get floored on how anybody could do this, how, how these crimes could happen. This is the point I asked you about the heart. I don't want to put you on the spot. It's not to to gain glory points or anything. One, one thing I've been getting from a lot of young people is, you know, you're really hurting my mind telling me about such violence. I mean, basically, that's the kind yeah. of thing. And I've had this discussion now with several guys, and it. I can understand if a, someone says to me, this is harsh. And I do think that historians have to deal with violence. We haven't done it very well. I think fiction writers, you know, if that's something that you will go down in the future... If that's what you want to do, fiction writers can engage in violence in all kinds of multiple dimensions. 
it's a lot harder for an academic because either you're being, you know, kind of lurid or you're not really being sensible. You're just kind of getting your fix on death or killing or violence, whatever. And and that troubles me, I have to say. So I was just interested in your response. Yeah, well, and I think too, for, for fiction writers and for nonfiction writers, there's a real sense of, you know, you want to do justice to the victims of all these crimes in both nonfiction and fiction. Uh, that's another, a great point, actually. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And so, you know, you still want to tell a story because these are stories that are that people need to hear. Like you were talking about, you you followed the thread because you felt like this was a topic that people just either they don't know or they're not paying attention to or it's not been explored like it, it should be. Um, but then there's also the the line of, you know, wanting to make sure, at least for me as a fiction writer, wanting to make sure I'm genuine to to what hap- what actually happened. Um, now, this is much more important for you as an actual historian. For me as a fiction writer, you know, there there is some invention that can happen. But with with a topic like the Holocaust, you know, it's it's really difficult because you don't, you know, like you said, you don't want this to be, you know, if, if I'm writing about the Holocaust, I don't want to invent something that is going to dishonor the people that 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 were victimized during it. And so so that's that's how I feel about the topic itself is my hesitations, not really hesitations, but I really just, you know, I want to I want to bring honor to to the people who had these crimes perpetrated against them in my writing. Uh, but I also, you know, I want to make sure I, I tell a story. So maybe something similar with you as, as a historian. I think, that's, I think that's a very strong and important point. You know, one of the things about the myth of the Luftwaffe, if we if we were to go down that again, um, by embellishing it, you're actually, you know, to a certain extent, um, not honouring. I'm not going to say that they're purposefully dishonouring, because I know these guys are not doing that. But you're not really honouring the victims, and you're not really being fair on all sides who are involved in this. Um you're just telling a one-shot story, and it and it's missing the it's missing the the vibrant element, which is what's actually going on here. You know, it's not the battles are in the air. Yeah, it's what the politics is leading to. It's what the the dogma of the Nazi state is leading to, and that to me is you know that's yeah. essential. You've got to you've got to tell that story. And I think too, like you talked about, there's been different stages of history, which is always to me, very interesting because, you know, it's like, how can there be, you know, multiple versions of um, how can we be in a, a level of scholarship now that was different in like the 80s? I'm, I'm quite impressed with 21st century historians. A lot of my co- older colleagues and people my age are, are not. They think, you know, we're somehow losing something um, with the age change and with social media and digital smartphones and God knows what else, we're somehow losing the old books. And to a certain extent, there's some truth in that. You know, people no longer look at the records. So certain very, very excellent pieces of of research and books that I knew during my days in the 80s and 90s have now vanished because they're no longer being um, republished. 
so they don't get, their numbers don't fall into the modern way. So an awful lot of scholarship is disappearing, and you, and sometimes I read a book and think, well, why didn't they read X? And they didn't read X because they didn't know it existed, because it's not on the Amazon list and it's not on the you know on their smartphones and what have you. I understand that, but I'm generally of the opinion that um, young historians now. This is the wrong word, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Uh, they're less respectful of the codes. We, we kind of stood by these codes and we assumed that whatever great historian was telling us that, he was 100% correct. And we've so much been proven to be incorrect, either deliberately or simply by poor scholarship. I think the younger people are less controlled by the levels of the hierarchies and all of that in history and they just go full on i mean some of the some some of the some of the young holocaust historians are going out there i mean they're really remarkable i just really love the kind of stuff that they're producing and some of the young um young historians especially now in britain working on the great war which is a subject which you'd think can we possibly know any more about what went on in the trench? And, you know, these guys have suddenly lifted up a whole new thing. And I, I read a book um, and I went to one of my first podcasts and it, I was so astonished at the quality of the, of the research and the, um, you know, the academic rigor that was behind that. So I'm, I'm very keen uh, on the way we've gone. We're certainly in a better, I think history, a lot of people won't agree with me, but I think we are in a better position history-wise today uh, than at any other time. Well, Philip, what do you so? What do you have coming? Uh, what's your next project? What are you working on now? Just finished a edited work on Putin's war and Russian genocide. So that was all kind of like what I've been doing in the past, but now looking at the Russians and what happened, what's been happening in Ukraine. Fortunately, that's now ended, and I'm back to my plan, which is a book on Arkham in the Age of Total War. So it's more of the this city where I live, um, looking at it from the two world wars and what went on between, before, after, and what have you. Obviously, there's a, an awful lot of uh, politics of violence, but I'm shifting now from military history and and going straight into more cultural social history. I think that the, the cultural history of a city that's experiencing the different vibes of war and the pressures and the tensions, that, that to me is, uh, is fascinating. So, yeah, that, that's my next project, and I'm hoping to finish that by the end of the year. That's great. Uh, well, kind of finally here, where can... Where can folks find you? Are you on social media? Uh, you talked about Twitter a little bit. Um, how can how can people get a hold of you? Well, I'm I'm on Twitter at historian blood. Now I always get this wrong. I'm on Fallout. Is it dot substack dot com? I you might be yeah. That's right. You mentioned you're on the Substack. Well, anyway, I'll put it in substack, the show notes. Fallout and a, and the night's Fallout and we called it Fallout because it was kind of uh, a bunch of guys who just wanted to talk about urban history and politics and culture um, and really just debate stuff. We have a podcast um, every now and again 
we call it letter to Putin. It's basically attacking everything that he's doing, and uh, but also very critical of what's happened on the Western side. Um, you know, we're not very keen on the way it's gone. Uh, it's a Polish friend, uh, an English friend, and myself, and and that's mostly it. I do my academia.edu account. I have um, friends and followers, and in there, um, I submit papers every now and again recently put one on putin's war uh in there i have discussion with people you know if so if somebody wants to talk to me about the book and what have you i prefer to do it in that so we can talk one-to-one rather than um on twitter Twitter tweeting at you (laughs) well yeah twitter's a bit of a loony place really yeah All right. Well, uh, Philip, thank you so much for uh, for your time here today. And thank you, everybody. Thank you very much for a very lively discussion. Thanks.